Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alecci and... I'm Peter Lim. And well, Peter, we have a trio of wonderful talks ahead, all of them recorded at the Making History Terence Ranger and African Studies Conference held in October at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And our first special guest today is Professor Terence Ranger, Emeritus Fellow of St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and Fellow of the Oxford Center for Mission Studies. Previously, Professor of History at the University of Oxford, where he mentored no fewer than 40 doctoral students. Professor Ranger came out to Africa in 1957 to teach history and found himself in the thick of things. In fact, he was deported from Rhodesia, what is today Zimbabwe, in 1963, and then held chairs at the University of Dar es Salaam, where he was part of the legendary Dar School of History. From there, he went to UCLA in the United States, Manchester, and Oxford in the UK. On retiring from Oxford, where he held the Rhodes Chair of Race Relations until 1997, he went to the University of Zimbabwe and taught there for four years. He's been writing about the history of Zimbabwe and Africa more generally for over 40 years, covering a huge variety of subjects. In 1980, Ranger co-founded the Britain Zimbabwe Society and has been a trustee of the Asylum Welcome Organization on Refugees. He's written or edited more than 20 books. One of his most famous works with Eric Hobsbawm is The Invention of Tradition. And his other major books include Revolt in Southern Rhodesia, Dance and Society in Eastern Africa, Peasant Consciousness and Guerrilla War in Zimbabwe, Soldiers in Zimbabwe's Liberation War, Voices from the Rocks, Violence and Memory, 100 Years in the Dark Forest of Matabeleland, and in 2008 he edited Evangelical Christianity and Democracy in Africa. And he just launched Bulawayo Burning, the social history of a southern African city, 1893 to 1960, published by Oxford and James Curry. with Professor Terence Ranger, one of the founders and central figures in the making of African studies and the doyen of African historians at the conference on Terence Ranger and the making of African studies here at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Professor Ranger, welcome to Africa Past and Present. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, the conference papers um, range across so many themes that you have made your own and driven forward to new scholarly heights from, say, African resistance and African agency to spirituality and landscape, violence and patriotic history. Looking back now on a full 50 years of critical engagement in Africa and its study, what do you think uh, might be the big issues that still confront Africa, and particularly us as scholars? What has been achieved and what challenges remain? A great deal has been achieved, obviously. But if we were to take uh, the country that I know best, Zimbabwe, um, it's taken a very long time for various reasons for a really dynamic and secure indigenous historical scholarship or anthropological scholarship to emerge. That's happened in the last decade and is coming to a fruition now and is represented in the new single-volume history of Zimbabwe. So, in a way, you could say that it's just beginning, 
I've been saying for nearly 50 years that the participation of Zimbabwean scholars with their command of the indigenous languages and the context is going to transform particularly the kind of work that I've been doing on identity and belief and so forth. And so that's just now getting underway and hopefully in the next period there are going to be transformations of that kind of work. Um, obviously another difference is that the empty spaces that existed 50 years ago, many of them have had at least a preliminary filling in um, so that it's not so much salvage work or rescue work as it was in those days. But nevertheless, there's still a tremendous amount to do. Uh, one thinks in terms of biographies, for example. Mm. There's so many important biographies to write. Still so many important events to narrate. So African history, despite 50 years' development, is certainly not in the same position as my first field, 17th century studies, where all the narratives have been written and most of the biographies have been written and so on. There's still a tremendous amount of that sort of thing to do. And then finally, um, in uh, archives like the one in Zimbabwe, material is becoming available for the more recent period, almost uh, into um, the independence archive. And I think this is a thing that we don't often realize, that so few um, scholars on Africa have had access to the kind of material for the period of independence that we have now for colonially produced material. Um, I've seen some myself in a privileged way in Zimbabwe, even although independence there is more recent than it is in other places. But um, so that I know that in the first 10 years of Zimbabwean independence, the same pattern of reports and annual reports and so on was maintained that were maintained in the late colonial period. But relatively little of that has been available to scholars and as it becomes available, the generalizations about the transition to independent Africa can be tested and substantiated or falsified. So there's still a very great deal to be done. Of course, you know uh, those Zimbabwean archives yourself so intimately. I think at one stage when you were restricted in Salisbury, you, you were able to make use of them in a special way. Yes, because I had to, I, I wasn't allowed to go further than three miles from my house, but <laughs> they fell within the three mile limit. So I was able to spend most of the day in the archives and then report to the police in the afternoon sort of a dream in a funny sort of way for a historian. Yes. Well, maybe we could fast forward and look at your interesting new book, Bulawayo Burning, which will actually have its American launch here at the conference. And you are, of course, well known for your studies of, for instance, peasant consciousness and for interpreting such themes as rural religiosity, diversity and landscapes, as in that wonderful book you wrote, Voices from the Rocks. Um, yet it struck me that you're really no stranger to African urban space. You just mentioned the time that you were marooned in Salisbury and chained to the archives. Um, you've written the, about the African voice in urban politics. 
Um, you've done a family biography of the urban-based Samkangis. And so I wonder if you could maybe, for the listeners, just explain this title, Bulawayo Burning, what it means, and is it perhaps in some ways a, a turn or even a return to urban studies as opposed to rural studies? It's a return, I suppose. But the title, Bulawayo Burning, uh, arises from the fact that it's a response to a novel, Yvonne Vera's novel, Butterfly Burning. Butterfly Burning is a novel about the Bulawayo Township, Makokorba, in 1946. And uh, Yvonne dedicated it to me. And she didn't do research in the way that a historian or anthropologist would do research. She talked to her mother, she talked to her grandmother, she listened to the music, and she imagined it in the most vivid way. Uh, she wrote the book in three months. And I thought, well, if Yvonne can produce this fantastically vivid impression of urban life without doing any research, what can I do if I did do research? And it was a foolish challenge to take up because clearly I wasn't going to surpass Yvonne. And the dedication of Bulaway of Burning uh, says mere prose for your poetry, and that, which is what it is. But what I'm doing is responding to her book by uh, taking the themes that emerge from it, from the novel, and putting them in a historical sequence, going back much earlier, carrying on through. So it's called Bulaway of Burning in order to emphasize the fact that it's connected to her novel Butterfly Burning. On the other hand, there were burnings. When the uh, column marched on Lobengula's Bulawayo in 1893, mm. there were members of the column, white members of the column, who were hoping to be able to loot his crawl. There were supposed to be great stores of ivory and cloth and so on there. And Lobengula gave instructions that it be fired. So as the white columns approached Lobengula's Bulawayo, there were huge explosions and the whole thing was a seething mass of flame. Nothing was left except ashes. So the history of Mombolawero began with that great fire. And I've kept my eye open in the book for plenty of other fires. Now, what has happened since the book was published, in fact, is that the reconstruction of old Bulawero, Lomangula's previous capital, which was carried out by the museums, so that they had rebuilt the Palisades and the Jesuit mission and the Zulu huts. That's all been burnt to the ground by a terrible bushfire. Oh. The museum has been fined quite a lot of money by the Environment Agency. And uh, somebody wrote to me from Bulawayo as a kind of joke, saying, if you dare to come and launch a book called Bulawayo Burning at this moment, oh, the Environment Agency will fine you too. Oh. So fire is a theme in the history of Bulawayo, quite apart from Yvonne's novel. But the title of the book comes from its dialogue with Yvonne's novel. And because it's a dialogue with her novel, it means that uh, I've paid more attention than in the past to um, issues. There's a chapter called The Feminization of Black Bulawayo, for example. And my publisher, Douglas Johnson, in the questions that he asked me, says, does this amount to the feminization of Terence Ranger? <laughs> um, 
And so I'm picking up many of the same themes that Yvonne herself picked up, both in that novel and in the wonderful township photograph exhibition that she held at the gallery. Um, and I've also, in a way, responded to the fact that I'm talking to a novel by uh, adopting some sort of literary forms, um, not in terms of invention. I couldn't write a historical novel to save my life because I can't imagine what people might have said to each other. All I can do is to record what they did say to each other. So there's nothing in the book which is invented or imagined. It doesn't have any of these probabilities or one might think that or no doubts and so on. Um, the, the book is entirely composed of a mosaic of evidence from uh, criminal records, CID reports, newspapers, or interviews, and so on. Nothing is invented, uh, which is a condemnation of my paucity of imagination. But So the result is that whereas Bond, writing her novel, was painting very, very rapidly uh, a watercolor or an oil painting, my book is a mosaic of a 100,000 pieces stuck together. The problem is to make that move, which I hope I have done. But I've also followed some of her narrative techniques. The first sentence of her novel, Butterfly Burning, is there was a pause, an expectation. And that's very typical of Yvonne. She writes in the pauses before anything has yet happened, but you think something must. And so I have a pause chapter, which is sort of setting the scene. And then I have an equally long chapter, which is a narrative of, a, of just a week's events where violence breaks out in 1929 or later on in the book where violence breaks out in 1960. So that the rhythm of the book, it's very narrative, but it's narrative at different speeds, so to speak. Uh, and finally, I adopt the novelist's technique of illustrating things through the trajectory of characters people's careers, so that I have a great character, Mr. Black Bulawayo, I call him, Sipan Benito Manioba, who was one of these characters who did everything. He was a member of the Indobeli royal clan. He was born in Bulawayo, spent all his life there. He was the star footballer and leader of a band, um, a choreographer of great imagination for Indobeli royal ceremonies a trade unionist, a politician, he, he did everything. And so one's able to talk about football and talk about dance and talk about music and talk about politics through the career of one person. Um, so this is not an entirely novel departure, if I can use that term for you, because in the past you've also written, for instance, about sport in Bulawayo, your wonderful article on boxing, yes. the African voice, you started to plumb some of these political connections, even going to the south. And of course that pioneer column came, it emanated from Cecil Rhodes and from the south. And I was reminded when I last interviewed you back in 1992, you made an interesting comparative point that whereas Zimbabwean literature in general uh, might be dwarfed by that of South Africa. 
you know, the, the behemoth to the south. In some senses, Zimbabwe's historiography is more detailed and more focused than South Africa's. And as you say, much of your work is focused on a particular country, Zimbabwe, or specific places like Bulawayo or people. But at times, you've also drawn some comparative points very well. And today, I was thinking that we hear an awful lot, especially in this country, about diasporan studies or transnational studies. And there is now a very large Zimbabwean diaspora across the Limpopo River in South Africa. I've heard one to three million estimates and in other neighboring countries. And so I wonder what, what might be the advantages or disadvantages of this growing fascination of scholars with transnational studies of Africa. And for instance, may, maybe there's a need for more frequent interactions between, say, Zimbabwean and South African historians. I think there certainly is. Um, my ex-student and now colleague, David Maxwell, uh, has written a study of a Zimbabwean church, but he's written it as a transnational study, Zayoja, the Zimbabwe Assemblies of God, mm -hmm. because it has congregations in Mozambique and in South Africa, and he sees its transnational character as very important. In a way, that's not a new idea for me either, because the East African work that I did that was published as distinct from that which never got published. The East African work that I did that was published was about movements across colonial borders, like my book about dance and society, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. I was able to draw on archives from four or five different African states. So I've been always interested counterbalancing the detailed uh, case study by studies of movement in this way. And in fact, there's an interaction. For example, um, somebody sent me from Vitz a study of Zimbabweans in the South African diaspora. And he made the point that Zimbabweans had to make a breach with their customs, and they were living in the same room with uh, sexes and generations together, and that had never happened before. Mm. And I sent them part of one of my chapters in Bulawayo Burning, showing precisely that happening, mm. you know, 60 years ago in Bulawayo as it becomes occupied, mm. so that the uh, Zimbabwean squatter settlements in South Africa are replicating patterns of urbanization in Zimbabwe itself. And it's part of the same sort of patterns of movement and reproduction. So I think that that kind of transnationalism is very important. Uh, so far as some elements of Zimbabwean history being more securely established than South Africa, um, one example I would give is landscape studies. There are strong landscape studies in South Africa. There's a recent book called Great Spaces Filled with Sun, mm. which has been very enthusiastically reviewed. It doesn't tell you, however, that that title comes from Kipling's Ode at the Burial of Cecil Rhodes, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't treat Kipling as anything but a stuffy old imperialist, certainly not as a poet of landscape. But this is also the, the title of a chapter you did. Yes, I think it is. And, and when, when it gets to the Limpopo, um, it just doesn't know what was going on. It's it's a great book for a study of the white construction of landscape in South Africa. 
but it says nothing at all about African perceptions of landscape. Where Joe's, Joe and McGregor's work and my work and the work of other people in Zimbabwe is looking at both white and black constructions of landscape. Joanne's wonderful book, uh, Crossing the Zambezi, for mm. example. Mm. South African reviewers tend to say rather irritably, well, yes, yes, of course, Africans had notions of landscape, but they never pursue the of course to the extent of writing about it. It's funny you should mention that because I was recently in communication with two South African historians, Jane Carruthers, an environmental historian, and young Lindsay Brown, an up-and-coming young American historian of, of land tenure, and they both mentioned this book mm. as something that needed to be done in South Africa. And so as you said earlier, this, as you said way back in 1992 to me, that there is this curious uh, fact that Zimbabwe studies is, is, is sometimes more detailed and more focused or perhaps more innovative. And maybe that comes back to the isolationism or the South African exceptionalism that maybe still lingers at times. But So hopefully there could be a greater interaction. I want to come back to another point you made earlier about the need for more biographies and um, and also perhaps turn to the political sphere, but relating that, say, to the cultural sphere. You've, you've written extensively on both spheres, if I can put it that way. Right. right. And, but it's uh, seeing the uh, new cohorts of graduate students coming through each year, uh, I tend to sometimes worry about the disjunction that, that might be developing in... Um, between cultural studies <coughs> and political studies, social history and so on. So um, I noticed that in 1995 you wrote, quote, I have myself moved from being a nationalist historian through being a historian of rural society and environment and religion back to being a historian of nationalism, unquote. And of course you cop some flack over the years from some who interpreted your work on certain continuities of primary resistance with later incarnations of resistance in African nationalism as bringing grist to the mill of nationalists. Yet I wonder, and I've often thought this myself, can we afford to ignore the study of these recurring nationalisms? You've written recently about patriotic history, for instance, right. in Zimbabwe, and it seems to me that maybe we need a, a better dialogue between these different sub-genres of history or different paradigms um, so that, as Shula Marx put it in her contribution to, the, to a feshrift in your honour in 2000, that the personal can become the political, so that we can have this sort of bridge between, maybe this is partly what you're doing in, in the new book, but basically how can we get a, a better interaction of the cultural and the political spheres in Southern African studies? I, th I, th I think going back... Um and indirectly answering the question, um, there is a difference, speaking as a historian, there is a difference between the relationship of Zimbabwe to history and the relationship of South Africa to history. And this relates to the contrasting development of the nationalist movements. History is critically important in Zimbabwe. Uh, patriotic history is critically important to the legitimacy of the Mugabe regime and the deconstruction of that patriotic history is critically important to the opposition. In South Africa, though, the legitimacy of the ANC 
now under some challenge, depends very much less upon an interpretation of the history of South Africa, and certainly very much less on an interpretation of the pre-colonial history of South Africa. Whereas in Zimbabwe, the patriotic history narrative is founded on ideas about pre-colonialism as well as about colonialism. So in South Africa, you might say, and at some points it looked as though it was a good thing, that legitimacy depends upon the Freedom Charter. And in Zimbabwe, it depends upon the narrative of successive revolts. But certainly history is much more profoundly um, at the core of Zimbabwean debate and Zimbabwean personality. And we've been talking about that here the last couple of days because Gerald Mazariri has talked about the situation in the University of Zimbabwe. And at one and the same time, it's been almost a basket case with its collapse of its water and its halls of residence and its flight of staff. But at the same time, it's produced academic traditions of very considerable strength, mm. which are now illustrated by the Zimbabweans who teach in South Africa or uh, in Europe and the United States. Um, Zimbabwean historiography has reached a point of takeoff. It's taken a long time, but now it's reached a point of takeoff. Whereas in South Africa, it's a long way to go before you have uh, a large body of black South African historians. And you can see this in the Journal of Southern African Studies, where in recent years we've published a lot of Zimbabwean scholarship, mm. very little Zambian, very little Malawian, hardly anything by black South African scholars. Um, and it sounds a racist thing to say, and the late Sandra Tupido would have hated to hear me say it. But in some ways, the, the very strength of white scholarship in South Africa um, masks the problems of creating uh, an African scholarly tradition there. It's difficult to think of there being a weakness in South African historiography because they're such great historians. But they're masking the fact that so few African scholars are going into academia or going into the writing of, of history. So the discourse is bound to be different between the two. Hopefully, the employment of Zimbabweans in South African universities will have a fruitful interaction in that respect. Yes, it's a strange irony what you said about the, the domination of the history departments in South Africa and but maybe working its way uh, at last to a new sort of beginning. And as you say, the resilience of the University of Zimbabwe has been truly amazing. Yes. And that resilience is perhaps uh, gives us optimism as scholars to continue the engagement and uh, about which we've spoken tonight. Uh, thank you very much, Terence Ranger, for talking to Africa past and present. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, 
www.aodl.org. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>